We'll be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. And by way of introduction, totally different part of the Bible, but briefly I want to present some key elements of another Old Testament story. The story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50 I can't help but wonder, as I read the elements of Daniel chapter 2, if Daniel was thinking about Joseph's story. He would have known the Old Testament. He knew the Psalms. You know, much of what we have in the Old Testament was already written and available. Listen to the key elements of Joseph's story. Joseph, it says in Genesis, dreamed a dream. Joseph dreamed a dream. And the dream he dreamed was about the future and who would be ruling. So Joseph dreams a dream about the future and who will be ruling. Later, after he sold as a slave by his brothers into Egypt and then imprisoned as a prisoner in a foreign land, Joseph's called on to interpret the king's dream, Pharaoh's dream. Then having successfully interpreted Pharaoh the king's dream, he's elevated to a position of ruler in Egypt And Pharaoh acknowledges that it's Joseph's God who can reveal dreams. And think of Joseph's story as we go through Daniel 2. Joseph concluded later in his life as his brothers approach him, they did him wrong. And they're afraid that now that he's in power that he's going to bring about retribution. But he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph looked back at the events of his life and said this was no accident. You're selling me into slavery. My being imprisoned unjustly in Egypt, none of these things were accidents. God was sovereignly behind the scenes at work in all these uh, events so that I would be here for this time so that many lives would be preserved. And this is, this is almost step by step the same elements of the story we see in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, your word is life and truth, and you've recorded the things that we can build our lives on. I know that you're speaking to the church. It just strikes me how many people on the radio are teaching through Daniel Uh, currently, and that uh, it must be that you want the church to be hearing elements from this portion of your word. And so help each one of us hear what you're saying to us this morning, no more and no less. And Lord, help us to be wise and build our house, our lives, on the rock of your word, the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 2, this is a little different. You know, when we were teaching through John, Upper Room Discourse, you take three verses, sometimes one, and you teach for 30 or 40 minutes. We're going through, zipping through 30 to 40 verses a week. So, a little different, uh, but worthwhile. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, remember he's the Babylonian king, the most powerful man on earth, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. Your version may read a little differently had dreams, whatever. But just like Genesis' account, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. Now, 
This is a list of the kind of counselors King Nebuchadnezzar had at his disposal. Some of these guys are probably scientists, astronomy, science, philosophy, things like this. Others are just magicians. These are the guys who kill the chicken and read the chicken liver. You know what I mean? So these are, these are the wide group of all the people he has available to seek counsel from. Sometimes they're grouped uh, under the heading Chaldeans also. It says, so they came in, they stood before the king, and the king said to them, I dreamed a dream. My spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and this was the common language of that day in that area, and said, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. No problem. This is what we do. You tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. This is the deal. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Imagine this is the interruption to your work day. It says, But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So it's do or die, it's death or glory. There's no in-between here. They're either going to rise or they're going to fall on this sole command. Now these guys are in a corner and they know it. And so they respond by telling the king how very unreasonable he is. At verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. Same, same thing. Please tell us the dream. Then, then we'll tell you the interpretation. The king replied, verse 8, I know for certain that you're bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree left for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, so that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation." Nebuchadnezzar was a shrewd guy, and he probably had seen the way these counselors had interacted with his father. And these guys are shrewd. There's no doubt about it. They wouldn't be in this position, and they have a certain kind of wisdom. He's seen how they operate, though, and he reasons this. If I tell them my dream, they can tell me anything, and I won't know if it's true or not. They can read the chicken livers and tell me anything, and I don't know if it's true or not, but... I'm so troubled by this, and this is so important to me, that I'm going to withhold the dream. That way I'll know if they can tell me the dream that's only in my mind, then I'll know they can really tell me what the dream means. The Chaldeans answered the king and said in verse 10, and this is serious, but on one hand and on the other, I can hear these guys going, they're whining. They said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. You're so unreasonable, king. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There's no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. They're saying, come on, king, what you're asking is impossible. No man on earth can do what you're asking. Only the gods can. Uh, They're caught, and they know it. And so they're trying to find some wiggle room out, and they're not finding it. They do speak three things here, though, that I think are true, besides just trying to get out of a problem. They say first, in verse 10, no mere mortal can do what the king asks. This is true. They understand that no 
mere person with the attributes and the powers that any one of us has can look into another person's mind and know what's there. We can't do it physically. It's an impossibility. This is what they're saying. This is true. They also say the second thing in verse 11, that only gods, their gods, or God, singular, can answer the king's demand. It would take a god or gods to do what he's asking mere mortals like them to do. And the third thing is, they say that the gods the Babylonians know do not dwell with men and do not communicate with men. This is kind of interesting because they're giving up a little something here. Some of these guys claim to speak for the gods. And they tell Nebuchadnezzar here that the gods would know, but they can't tell you, and they don't live with us, so we can't tell you. So they're out. They have nothing to do. They have no place to go. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're toast. Verse 12 and 13, Because of this the king became indignant and furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. They looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them also. And this is where our friends are brought in. One thing about Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as wise and shrewd as he was on one hand, and as much as God honored him, he was given to fits of rage. This is one of them, and we'll see another one in the next chapter. But sometimes we don't make good decisions when we're given over to excessive anger like this. Uh, Before we go through with this story, I want to bring up this point that perspective perspective in this story and in the book of Daniel is everything. Just think through a couple parts here, if you will. If you're one of the Chaldeans, you've been going about your job regularly. You're called in one day and the king makes a demand on you which you know is impossible. From your perspective, an unreasonable demand is going to mean that you're going to be destroyed. Your life is over and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the Chaldeans or the wise men's perspective. The second is Daniel and his friends, at least initially, they know that they're going to be lumped together with the rest of the king's counselors and killed. Verse 18, we'll get to that in a little bit. So for Daniel and his friends, remember these guys, they've just been imported within about the last three years. They may not even be graduated from uh, counselor school yet. We're not sure how this relates time-wise with chapter 1. How unfair, God. We're going to be lumped with these guys and we're going to be killed along with the rest. And we just got here. How unfair. But then the third perspective is God's. And this is hopefully, obviously, what we all end up with. Uh, Remember that it's God who initiates the series of events that will lead to God being revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his buddies will be elevated. This is just like Joseph's story in Egypt. So go back, roll the tape backwards and ask the question, who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dreams? that are troubling him. This this is what started everything. We'll learn later, he's wondering about the future, and he dreams dreams. Where did the dreams come from? Because Daniel's going to tell us God's revealing this to you. So God initiated the dreams. In other words, this trouble that suddenly poured in on them, it's not an accident. God initiated this. So when Daniel and his buddies here, they're lumped in with the rest of the counselors and their life may be forefoot from God's perspective. Maybe they thought of Joseph's story. I don't know yet. But from God's perspective here, God is in control. God is initiating the trouble. This isn't an accident. He's initiating the trouble. 
because he has purposes he wants to accomplish through it. This makes me wonder for you and I, if we put ourselves back in their shoes and suddenly someone confronts us and says, you're going to be killed at the end of the day because these guys can't answer a question. You know, most of our response quite naturally would just be sudden despair, sudden hopelessness, sudden anxiety. I mean, go through it, the list of emotions that we would suddenly be thrown into. And I can attest for myself, even little bumps in the road of my life that come up, I'm just, (laughs) I feel undone. This, though, when we look at it from this perspective, that God initiated the trouble, God initiated the life-threatening situation in their lives, this, this would change all your perspective. If Daniel and his buddies are remembering Joseph, maybe right now they're cool and calm saying, you know, we've seen this before. I wonder if God's behind this, actually. I wonder if God has purposes he wants to accomplish <clears throat> that he has in, initiated all this. And then this makes me ask for you and me, when sudden trouble comes our way, when we lose a job or we lose a home, when we change schools, when the income's not what it should be, whatever trial, whatever difficulty comes our way, I wonder if our initial response instead of anxiety shouldn't be to take one step back and just say, God, what do you have in this situation? What are you up to? There's some other things to do, and we'll look at that as Daniel and his buddies do here as well. But this is just a great reminder that even if trouble and what appears to be certain doom suddenly looms in your life, this chapter reminds us that God initiates and God is in control. And we need to step back with Daniel and his buds and do what they did. Starting at verse 14 again. Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. He told him what's going on. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Do you remember in chapter 1? Daniel and his buds purposed in their heart not to defile themselves with the king's food. But they're not sure how they're going to get out of this. But what they do is they go to the person in authority over them. They don't stamp their feet and tell them that he's ungodly and God's on their side, etc., etc. Remember, they went and they made a reasonable suggestion. Give us a test. That's all he does here. Throughout the book of Daniel, one of the shining elements of Daniel's life is this consistent, perhaps humble, peaceful, wise reaction to the troubles that come up in his life. Uh, This is a great example for us. He simply makes a reasonable request. He speaks to Arioch first. He finds out what the situation is. And then he's asked, probably escorted by Arioch into the king's presence, and he asks for a stay of execution, little time so I can make the interpretation known. It may be because the king knows these guys aren't part of the regular group of counselors. It could just be God's favor. The king acquiesces and says, okay, I'll give you a small period of time here. But again, Daniel just proposes this reasonable test. Just proposes a reasonable test that will give God time to intervene on their behalf. And then look at verse 17 and 18. 
That's the first thing he does. But the second thing, just as important, it says he went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. This is what's going on. So that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. There's this initial wise, discerning, reasonable request, and then there's prayer. Then they're on their knees together asking the God of heaven for compassion. Now, whether it's your life or Daniel's life, if we say what would give them confidence, what gives us confidence about approaching God in the midst of our troubles, for Daniel and his buds, again, they have enough of the scriptures of their day to know what God is like. Think of Exodus 34. When God revealed himself to Moses, he says in Exodus 34, verse 6, describing himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. They understood that the God of Israel was this God, loving, this loyal love that seeks people through to the end, faithful, ready to respond. We could, there's hundreds, literally, maybe more, thousands maybe, of verses in the Old Testament that talk about God's character and about His desire to deliver those who call on Him and who trust in Him. Psalm 9, verse 9 and 10 says, The Lord will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know Your name will put their trust in You, for You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. In other words, they knew God and they knew His character. They knew that He was a compassionate God. And so they get on their knees together and they ask the compassionate God to enter into their situation and bring deliverance. And again, just a great reminder to you and I, I think, when you're faced with troubles that are bigger than you can handle, physical, emotional, spiritual, at home, at work, whatever it is, It makes sense to do what Daniel did. If there's a response you need to give, give a reasonable response. But then pray. And let others you know pray with you to seek the God of compassion. That the God we serve is a God who's given His Son for us, Romans 8 says. He'll give us anything. We should have bold confidence, Hebrews says, to enter His presence in our time of need. We should know Him like that. He's a God of compassion He's ready to enter. So when the troubles come our way, we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't fret. Isaiah 41.10 says, don't anxiously look about you. You know, who's going to deliver me? God says, don't fear, I'm with you. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what Daniel and his buddies did. Reasonable response and then sought mercy from the God of compassion. Verse 19, having prayed, it says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel responds. It says, Daniel, bless the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. 
To you, O my God, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to me the king's matter. You know, the first thing he does when God answers his prayer is, there's this pouring out, there's this psalm, praise of thanksgiving to God. And all Daniel does is he describes what's true of God and thanks him for what he has specifically done here. And you know, there's a psalm that says, praise is becoming to the upright. We've talked about this in the past, but you know, for a Christian, for anyone who's come to know God through Jesus Christ, the natural tendency of our lives should be to do exactly what Daniel does here. He just attributes to God what's true of God what his character is, what he's like, and then specifically thanking him for the particular deliverance that he brought about here. But you know, for myself, I know oftentimes I'm quick to ask God for help, and then I forget to say thanks when he's delivered. And Daniel's immediate response is, once God's answered, he thanks him, and he just blesses him for the kind of person he is, his character. Continuing on at verse 24, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Uh, Just a brief note here. This is interesting, particularly in light of some coming chapters. Daniel's response here, he doesn't just say, You can spare us, us Jews, us good guys. He says, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. And this strikes me because you think of God's character, he says in the Gospels, is he's good to the the just and the unjust. He makes sunshine on the righteous and the wicked. And we know amongst these guys, there's wicked guys. Daniel's response, though, says, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. The deliverance God accomplishes for he and his friends, he shares with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. This is good, and this is God's character, and this is a a good thing. It's it's ironic, though, because what happens in chapter 6? I wonder if any of these guys are still around, serving under Darius the king, when the wise men specifically target Daniel to get him, and to kill him, and to have him thrown in the lion's den. We'll look at that story later. But the response of God's man versus the guys whose only hope was in this world and the God of this world, Daniel's response is he lets God's blessing be poured out on the other people around him. He doesn't hold it to himself. The unrighteous men in chapter 6, if any of them are still here, and there's a good chance some of them still were, the kings were glad to use wisdom from any source. But the response of the unrighteous in chapter 6 it's to try and kill Daniel. It's interesting. We, hopefully, we respond like Daniel here. That uh, Jesus says in the Gospels, you know, if you just love those who love you, you're no different than the pagans who don't know God. That we should be like God himself. He causes his sun to shine on the wicked and the just. Daniel is a great, great example of that here. Verse 25, Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? 
Daniel answered before the king and said, and, and Daniel's response here is just like Joseph's in Genesis. Same demeanor, same type of response. Both God's men, both humble guys. Uh, Daniel says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, he agrees with the Chaldeans here. He says, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. King, your counselors were right. No man can tell you what you requested. It's impossible. However, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. They were right on the third one too. Gods, or God, can make it known, but their gods don't live with them and don't communicate with them. But Daniel's God not only has the secret, Daniel's God communicates with those who are in relationship with him. He says, This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, king, while on your bed... And remember, the king's had the dream. Nobody else knows about it. And can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar's uh, response and thoughts as he's hearing Daniel read his mail, so to speak, describe where he was and what his thoughts were, as well as the dream. I'm sure his mouth continues to drop as Daniel continues to speak. Uh, let's see, your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Again, God initiated this dream. It wasn't an ordinary dream. God was initiating not only information, but all the scenario that followed. As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. There's nothing special about me that I'm able to come in and tell you what other men can't. I can't. I don't have that power. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. This too is interesting to me. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. And it's clear after chapter 2, he still doesn't get it that there's one true God. Because he erects a statue. And he's going to go on from here. He's going to throw guys in the furnace who won't bow to his gods. So it's clear, even after chapter 2, he doesn't get the full picture. It seems that he thinks there's the Jewish God, and he's a high God. But there's my other gods too, and he doesn't understand, no, there's one true and living God. And even in light of that, God, the God of heaven who reveals mysteries, makes known what's coming to the world history to a pagan king. I find this interesting. He says it's made known, so you will know, king. What's ahead? He describes the dream in verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. Its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is the dream Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. 
this is a very graphic. There's a statue. He sees the key elements made of these various metals, inferior metals as you go from top to bottom, clay mixed in at the bottom. And then last of all, this stone cut out, no human hands, crushing the statue such that the statue is such fine powder the wind blows it away. There's nothing left but the stone which grows into something that fills the whole earth, a mountain. If you and I just had that dream, I think we'd be like Nebuchadnezzar. What does it mean? We might know the dream, but like Nebuchadnezzar and like Pharaoh in Genesis, we wouldn't know what its interpretation is. God has given Daniel both. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. King of kings on the earth. Remember, in this period, a king might have a hundred kings under him, and he would be the most high king or the king of kings. They would be sub-kings under him. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. It's interesting that Daniel's not afraid to say, the God of heaven, my God, has given you this kingdom, this authority, and this power. Verse 38, wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. This is the first element of the statue. You're the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you or to your kingdom. Then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, that breaks in pieces. It will crush and break all these in pieces. This iron kingdom is going to, not quite like the stone, but it's going to be very destructive. It's going to clear all the other kingdoms out from before it. 41, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle. Let's see. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. This last kingdom is going to have elements of strength and weakness, and elements that don't normally combine with one another. In the days of those kings, the kings of the iron and clay, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. No one's going to inherit a second or a fifth kingdom after this one, the kingdom of the stone. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You can count on this. This is the dream and this is the meaning Daniel's going to go into a lot more detail here in the future, some other dreams and some visions on these coming world empires. But briefly, uh, this, we'll get into this in later chapters, he's told Nebuchadnezzar here that you're the head of gold. The Babylonian Empire is the head of gold. The silver chest and arms will be the second kingdom following them, the Medo-Persian Empire, 
that will be instituted still while the book of Daniel goes on. The third kingdom, the bronze belly and thighs, will be the kingdom of Greece. And again, if you're familiar with this book, these, the specific nature of the prophecies that come up is just so remarkable. It's why so many Christian scholars reject Daniel as a piece of prophecy and say it's history written as prophecy because it is so outstandingly specific about these folks to come. In fact, it's said, getting ahead of myself, that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, the Jews brought him the texts of Daniel and showed him himself and that he left Jerusalem alone because of this. And then the iron clay with legs, uh, uh, feet combining uh, clay and iron will be the Roman Empire. Then the stone cut without hands is going to be God's kingdom in the end. I find this interesting. You know, when you pray or when you read the Lord's Prayer and say, Thy kingdom come, you're standing in line with Daniel. You're tied into the same text we're reading right now where God has told him there's going to be these Gentile powers that rule the earth. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, this is all ancient history, and then Rome, right up to the time of Jesus and quite a a ways past. Uh, And then there's going to be this last kingdom that comes in, represented by a stone, cut without hands. If you remember in the Old Testament, when you made an altar for God, you never cut the stones. God didn't want the the fruit of your hands. It was the natural elements that you used to build an altar for Him. And this stone, cut without hands, the work of God is what comes in and crushes everything in front of it and then expands itself to fill the whole world. So even today, when we pray, Your kingdom come, or when we read that element out of the Gospels, we're praying about this rock. In Daniel's uh, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God's kingdom to come in and clear away all the human work and effort before it and establish God's righteous kingdom. This is great. Daniel's book is definitely up to date. At verse 46, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods or a God over gods and a Lord over kings or a king over kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. The king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So that in the end, the circumstances that appeared to spell Daniel's doom along with all his friends ends up being the means God uses to do two things, to show Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel's God, the God of Israel, was the true God, the God who reveals mysteries, reveals what is otherwise unknowable. And then Daniel and his friends, the guys who are honoring God throughout this book, are elevated to positions of authority and honor. They're made rulers. Just like Joseph. Same element, same thing. For Christians today, it's easy to feel like you're kind of downpressed sometimes. The downtrodden. We're, we're troubled. Things are tough. There's a verse in Revelation 3 spoken to the churches, and it says this. Jesus speaking, He who overcomes, I will grant 
him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You know, for Christians today, just like Daniel, God has this future in store for us where he elevates us to position of ruler. Even if it looks like we're the slaves in a foreign land or we're imprisoned unjustly, however easy or difficult our lives are here, the future is that we're going to rule and reign with King Jesus over a millennial kingdom and over a new heaven and new earth. We're going to be elevated with him. Uh, Just like Daniel was here, just like Joseph was in Egypt, God delights to honor those who honor him. That's our future. And sometimes in the midst of the troubles and trials of life, it's easy to forget that God's in control and that nothing in your life or mine happens, nothing happens, that an omnipotent God doesn't either cause or allow. So that when you and I are surprised by trouble or conflict or whatever it is that upsets our life, we need to be thinking about passages like Daniel too and Joseph's story that maybe God is sovereignly initiating events in our life for his purposes and for our good. And again, you go back to Romans chapter 8 that it says God will use all things He'll work them together. Even things like in Joseph's life, meant for evil, someone means to harm you. God says, I'll take that and I'll use it for good in your life. Or accidents, things outside our control. God says, I'll take that and I'll use it for good in your life. Spiritual warfare. Satan coming in, actively wanting to harm us. God says, I'll take that and I'll use it for good in your life. In fact, another story I'll just mention In the book of Job, you know, all the troubles Job goes through. Do you remember? Man, the guy just one crushing blow after another. And in the story, it's Satan causing it, isn't it? But when you go back to Job 1, who started the ball rolling? God did. When Satan comes up to God in heaven, God says, Have you seen my man Job? God's the one that points him out. Satan doesn't come up and say, I want that man. God says, Have you seen my buddy Job over here? God initiates the trials in Job's life and then blesses him and elevates him again at the end of the book. When God is again revealed as the righteous one for Job's sake and the others around him. But I just think, uh, studying through Daniel, even looking at some of the elements of the Upper Room Discourse, this whole concept that I don't have to worry in life because God's in control This whole element of being able to trust whatever happens, it may be uncomfortable, I may not like it. I may not like it at all. But I should be able to have this peace that my Father who loves me, who gave Jesus to save me, is sovereignly overseeing all the things that are happening. Nothing's taken Him by surprise. And I can do just like Daniel, respond wisely And with discernment, I can get on my knees and pray to the God of compassion for mercy. But I can rest knowing no matter what happens, my God will have his way in this world and in my life. And I can rest with that. That's our future. We don't have to worry. Uh, There's a book uh, about a mountain man. It was called A Tough Trip Through Paradise. You know what? Some of us, we've got a tough trip, but then there's paradise at the end. And God blesses us here. 
So my question to, to myself and also to all of us is, are we living like Daniel? Have we drawn our lines in the sand? We talked about in chapter 1. Have we purposed in our mind? Have we made up our will that we're not going to sin? That we're going to be holy for him? Are we responding with wisdom and discernment? Are we giving t- uh, God time to work on our behalf? Are we refusing worry and anxiety? And are we seeking compassion from a God who loves us and has fully demonstrated it in Jesus? And are we trusting in a God who initiates the circumstances of our life, the God who's fully in control of everything? Let me close with some, uh, an excerpt from, this is called The Eternal Goodness, John Green, Greenleaf Whittier. He says, I know not what the future hath of marvel or surprise, assured alone that life and death his mercy underlies. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed he will not break, but strengthen and sustain. And so beside the silent sea I wait the muffled oar. No harm from him can come to me on ocean or on shore. I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. And thou, O Lord, by whom are seen thy creatures as they be, forgive me if I too close forgive me if too close I lean my human heart on thee. You know, we cannot trust God too much. And based on his character, on what he's done in the past, on what he's promised to do in the future, we can jump recklessly, so to speak into the arms of love of a Father who loves us and is in full control of every element of your life and mine. Let's pray. Lord, if you were just powerful, we would fear you. If you were just loving, we'd love you. But Lord, you have all power, you have all wisdom, you have all might. Father, you're the God that we should rightly fear, the God we should rightly love. Thank you for saving us, Lord, through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that through him you'll delight to bring about your kingdom on the earth and a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness is the rule. Father, as we live our lives on planet earth, a place that only darkly reflects your glory, help us. Live like Daniel, Lord. Help us to respond with wisdom and confidence. Help us to trust you fully, to seek your compassion. Help us to show your love and your blessings on those around us. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to a God who can't lie, who loves us fully, and who is fully in control. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.